You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are finishing today our series called Resolve. We started it the first Sunday in January, and it's finishing today. Um, And through this series, um, I hope you found it a bit practical and also inspirational to understand when we face conflicts in this world, uh, be they with people, situations, or when we face things that are difficult in this world, how um, we can see a bigger picture, a bigger reason maybe behind it all. And today, that's exactly what we're going to be uh, focusing on when we get to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 and how Peter reframes everything for a higher purpose in your life and mine when we face difficulties here. And I think we're finishing up this uh, series today with a great passage and an understanding, I think, that seems to be missing in our culture these days. I have a feeling other places in the world understand this a bit better than we do here in America anymore. But Peter is talking uh, to Christians in the first century that are facing a difficult time, and I think um, we've kind of lost that sense. And yet, he sums it up. There are three points that we're going to be looking at in this passage. You can find it in 1 Peter as we walk through it. But these are the three points we're looking at today. That you have a living hope, a tested faith, and a glorious salvation. Okay? So let's read 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's a powerful passage. Peter wrote it to Christians who are facing a very perilous time in their lives. A minority of minorities, small little churches of 30, 50, 100 scattered throughout the Roman Empire. That was not, um, not a hospitable place for, um, for a new faith to form. But he says we have a living hope. A living hope. I love that. Peter writes as well, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Did you see that in that line? Yeah. Now that is in contrast now to our society, by the way, I think. What a contrast to how people are feeling these days. Um, As I shared last week, Michael Bonner wrote a piece um, in, I think, The Atlantic. He said, Uh, And he was just reporting statistics and things that he had heard and read. He found that that the percentage of teenage Americans right now who claim not to enjoy life or to believe that their lives are basically not useful. 
has grown to nearly 50%. Half of our young people now, yeah, life is not enjoyable, and I don't think I'm useful in any way. That is a 20% increase just since the 1990s. So this is something new that is happening. It seems the world is filled as well. We've got more comfort. We've got more amusements than ever before. But somehow, there is a feeling of pessimism, not just, I think, among young adults, but among the whole culture. It's ironic, really, because um, I don't really want to go back to when I was a child to black and white television, right? I don't want to go back to a lot of those issues because um, we've come a long ways, a long ways in some very positive things from medical breakthroughs to technological break, all that stuff. And yet, it feels like there's less hope today than ever before. Too many people are feeling like they've got a dead end going on. Um, Jean Twenge uh, has written a, a phenomenal book called Generations. And in it, she describes in her research, both qualitative and quantitative, what she is finding among what she calls Gen Z, which starts in 1995 to 2012-ish, 2010. But that's who we're seeing as young adults right now. And she says this, every indicator of mental health and psychological well-being has become more negative among teens and young adults since 2012. Teens also began to show signs of depression and self-doubt. Starting around 2012, they became more likely to agree with statements like, I can't do anything right, and my life is not useful, and less likely to agree with, I enjoy life as much as anyone all classic symptoms of depression and low self-esteem. These were again sudden and large changes after several decades of only small shifts. So we're seeing like they're the canaries in the coal mine, I think. They're not having any living hope at all. In fact, it seems to be the opposite. Uh, Tuesday on campus at FGCU, uh, the campus ministries together are having a luncheon for faculty and staff to show our appreciation for them. And one thing that I'm sharing with them as the president of, the, or, uh, of that ministry consortium is the fact that I'm seeing right now a crisis in faith, a, a, a lack of hope, and a deficit of love among younger adults right now. That they just haven't been loved well they don't have anything to hope for just getting out and working. I mean, that's just not that exciting. And that they don't know who to believe or what to believe in anymore with all the stuff going on in our society. And those three things are extremely important to have a whole life for any of us. One Reddit contributor kind of summed up this whole feeling. He said this, Gen Z is distinctly nihilistic. I feel like it's the reason why so many of us struggle with mental health issues. 99% of us who are like LMAO, I'll leave that untranslated. Life is pointless, but don't worry, I'm fine, are not fine. So they're blowing it off, and yet underneath there's this feeling of things aren't quite right. Now, I know history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme, I think Mark Twain said. It does rhyme. 
And the rhyme I've heard, the same message I've heard is in that first century A.D. where Peter was writing this letter. I bring all this up to just give you the feel that we're back in the Roman Empire to an extent, first century. Now, <laughs> I don't know who started it. According to How many of you actually think about the Roman Empire a lot, men? Men are supposed to be thinking about it all the time. I'm not sure why. What we don't think about in the Roman Empire is the general pessimism that was about in the we oh man the roads things worked real well not so much for most people 99% of them were in a no end dead end situation Je J Gregory Bloomquist uh, wrote this, Mediterranean antiquity was marked by profound pessimism concerning life. We should not be surprised that in antiquity, joy is rarely mentioned except as an illusion. This is true for the philosopher and elites, and much more so for the vast populace that had no opportunity. And Albert Granger, in 1899, put it very well. A long time ago, but I think it rings true. He says, the common people of Rome did not accept the mythology of the poets as their religious creed, that they placed no faith in the gods which occupied so prominent a place in Roman literature, and that their nearest approach to belief in a divinity was the recognition of fate as blind, irresistible, inexplicable power, which often interrupted the natural course of life. I think that sounds just like a lot today. People know there's something beyond them that they can't control. They're not happy with it. It's impersonal. It's like fate. And um, not trying to depress you too much, Aiden, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you see this, though, kind of among, um, not necessarily for you personally, okay, but among a number of other college students? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It sounds so current, doesn't it, these quotes? Everyone today is looking for something or someone to believe in and can't figure out who they can trust anymore. And people have banked on and now turned to political figures or podcast pundits or pop stars to try to identify with them to such an extent to have something to believe in. But I'm going to tell you this. They can't give you meaning and purpose because they don't have it themselves. <laughs> You can't give to people what you don't have, and we're looking to people who don't have it to give it to us. Peter's words here in this text are just an amazing contrast, aren't they? He said, wow, this is amazing. You have a living hope. And he said it's not based on any socioeconomic factors in your life. It's not based on where you are living in the Roman Empire. He says it's not based on um, <laughs> any personal public factor of how things are going or where the future is for the Roman Empire at this time. He's not looking to that at all. He is looking only to Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead turned all history on, <laughs> on, on its head. Everything upside down, inside out. It's the pivotal point of all history. God has changed the whole destiny and future of everyone who believes in him. For sure. Not maybe. Not sort of. Not sometimes. But for sure. A living hope. That's what you have. Now, 
How does it show up? And I think Peter says, for the first Christians and for you, it shows up as a tested faith. A tested faith. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, life is a test. (laughs) Right? Life is really a test. And here's the point about conflict as well. Maybe you have a harder time, like I do, when I face conflict with the situation to actually see that God is actually testing me, purifying me through it, working in me through it. It may be easier to see when situations don't work out that God is using those. But when a personality is in front of me or I'm dealing with this, to see that it's not, they're not the problem... We may have a conflict, but God is using that like iron sharpening iron to an extent to make a difference in my life to, yes, of all things, to make me more patient. Right? Don't ever pray for patience. And, (laughs) right? Because you know what will happen. And um, making me more and more into the character of who Jesus Christ is. You get tested. When people do irritate you, when conflicts do arise, when you don't get what you want, when the unexpected happens, even when the expected happens, like traffic down here in the winter, when you feel out of control, because that's what it really is about, isn't it? That's when you know God is working. He's working. Timothy Keller writes this, He says, our own contemporary Western society gives its members no explanation for suffering and very little guidance as to how to deal with it. The end result is that today we're more shocked and undone by suffering than our ancestors. In our culture, that is, where everything is supposed to be easy, clean, nice, and convenient. Elsewhere in this world, I think Christians and others understand that testings come, that trials come, that difficulties come, that conflicts arise, but God is going to use them and work through them for our good. Here, the only thing I can do with conflict is avoid it or overpower it or try to win or try to to do anything, fight or flight. The last thing I want to do is actually reflect on it have God work in me, pray through it, and see a deeper purpose for it. But Peter, in this text, compares suffering or conflict, which is a form of suffering, to like gold being placed in a refining fire where all the dross, all the impurities get burned off and melted away. So Timothy Keller, in a book on um, suffering himself, and by the way, he passed away just less than a year ago, I believe, and had faced it in his own life through pancreatic cancer and different bouts with all the treatments. A friend of mine, um, a pastor who is a role model for me, Bob Azulski, just died as well this past year from pancreatic cancer. In the last three or four months in hospice, he finally just said, the pain and the agony of it all, it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to be with Jesus. This is just not worth trying to fight anymore. 
is not an easy thing to face. For any of us, you've all had trials. I know it. I know it. I don't care your age. You don't have a smooth ride through life. I know it. We not, none, of, none of us do. So this is what Keller says. And I think it's so true. Things put into the furnace properly can be shaped, refined, purified, and even beautified. This is a remarkable view of suffering that if faced and endured with faith, it can in the end only make us better, stronger, and more filled with greatness and joy. Suffering then actually can use evil against itself. It can thwart the destructive purpose of evil and bring light and life out of darkness and death. So God has a deeper purpose for you when you are facing conflicts. That neighbor who irritates you about the property line or this, that, or the other thing, that coworker that doesn't do his job, and then blame shifts to you about why things aren't getting done, the relative who is obnoxiously always sharing their political views with everyone, God is using those. Peter is saying, to mold you, to shape you into something even more beautiful than you already are. Conflict gives you an opportunity to grow. And what Peter is saying and what I think we really need to see in this is that there is a living hope, a tested faith, and a glorious salvation in front of us. That God is working through this in such a way, and I can be... A, able to both serve others and glorify God in how I handle conflict. Um, conflict gives you an opportunity. People might listen to what you say, but they really believe and trust in what you do and how you endure, especially how you resolve and work through conflicts. That's what they're learning the most. Now, if you're like me at this point in time in the sermon, you're going like, oh, no, I am failing this test. Yeah, I am. I have. But God is not, and God is not failing you, and he is not going to stop just because you've stumbled or struggled or didn't handle this or that right in the past. Let that all go. And look, Peter says, to the glorious salvation that you have. He says in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter stated that you are being saved, and through all of these things, God is working out your salvation. You don't see him. You don't understand it. You might not get a glimpse of it. You don't always get an answer to all the questions that you have, but this is what God is doing. He is working out your salvation. He has begun it, as he would say in, uh, in Philippians chapter 1. He's begun this good work in you, and he is going to bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. It is not an option. It's not a possibility. It is a promise of your God and Savior who loves you. Everything Everything is working to that end now because of the resurrection. God doesn't save you by some magic bullet or some miracle pill or some, you know, trick or gimmick. Salvation is not easy, not for God either, but it is freely given. It cost everything for our God 
to bring us our salvation. So the Christian response to conflict is not to deny it's there, to suffering, to trivialize it, or to try to explain everything clinically, or um, to walk away, or to overpower it by our own brute force, not at all. The Christian response to suffering looks to our Savior Jesus, who understands, who actually has gone through it and has overcome it. C.S. Lewis, in one of his poems, puts it this way, to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. Isn't that beautiful? We all face wounds and struggles. We've all been hurt by what people have said or done or not done around us. We've all faced these things, but it is God who entered into this human life, not in a protective kind of cocoon of spirituality, but into the flesh and blood existence in Jesus to be wounded and to understand it. That's why Paul, in his letters, agrees with Peter. He says this in 2 Corinthians, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. Because he could see a deeper purpose, and he's gone, you know, Paul went through shipwrecks and beatings and imprisonments, all unjust. He's not losing heart. Then he goes on, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. So followers of Jesus, we can come alongside of people who are in the midst of suffering just to be with them. We come alongside people in conflict to love them to speak truth in love and to work through it, not to walk away from it. We seek a deeper purpose, a greater vision. Maybe I don't understand exactly what's going on, but I see the ultimate goal and what God is doing. I don't understand why this had to happen now, but I do see what God is going to ultimately do one day. That's why I love um, Fyodor Dostoevsky in his book, The Brothers Karamazov, and he himself also faced persecution and suffering. I think he was put in front of a firing squad at one time by the, um, the Russian powers that be, by the Tsar, and they pulled the trigger and they were all blanks. Can you imagine going through that? Um, but he, so he himself went through anxiety and, and all sorts of stuff. And his point as a follower of Jesus, he says it this way, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. That's the justification we have in Jesus Christ. By God's wounds, we are healed. So you can face setbacks. You don't have to despair. You can face ridicule. 
but God and his approval is upon you. You are his beloved. You might face loss and grief. You still have hope. You experience conflict with others, but you know God has higher purposes. They come and go, but God is working through all of things for your good. Your hope is alive because Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection has changed it all for you. So you have a living hope, a tested faith, a glorious salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, this day, thank you for this series, for how you're going to resolve it all. You know, everything that we see going on in this world, so much that seems to be out of control, so much that seems to be uh, powers that are greater than us, they are not greater than you, Lord, nor greater than the the weakness of the cross, nor wiser than the foolishness of the cross. You have accomplished all through your son, Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection. And Lord, we thank you that that covers us now. We are yours and you are ours. Lord, you know the conflicts in our lives. You know the things that are unresolved. You know the conflicts within ourselves that we're trying to work through and can't seem to get resolved as well. We offer them all to you, Lord. We ask you to lead us through them. We ask you to give us at least the posture and the wisdom to know that you're working all things together for good. And you are working in our lives, not only to save us, but to bring us to completion in your son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, today, we're going to offer a number of situations to you, Lord, in our lives and a number of people we know in this body of Christ here at Thrive who are hurting, who are dealing with a need for your healing. So we offer to you Mike Grisky today. We ask that she would be comforted and strengthened, Lord, and you'd bring healing to her in her recovery. For Tom Hay, who does not have answers right now for what has all been going on, we pray your healing presence there for Otto, for Bob and Joan Beverly, for all who are facing um, struggles in their lives, Lord, right now, doubts and decisions before them. I offer to you today as well, Lord, um, the students at FGCU, some uh, will remain unnamed, but who are really um, struggling to find, uh, that are facing crises of faith in whom to believe a, uh, a true Lord, um, lack of hope and a deficit in how they have been loved. We pray, Lord, that we here and the students in our ministry as well can love them and offer them your hope. Offer them friendship, Lord. Offer them your truth in various ways. Um, We pray, Lord, for um, the events of this coming week at FGCU and the opportunities we have for ministry and open doors, uh, possibility for the future. I pray your wisdom and guidance through all those things that are going on there. And Lord, you know our lives. You know where we also have faced a crisis in our faith and a lack of hope and a deficit in love. I pray, Lord, um, you bring your healing presence to you today As we come to the Lord's Supper today, Lord, that's what you are and what you bring. You are our living hope. You are uh, the one whom we can trust 
you are the one in whom we have a glorious salvation. And as you offer yourself to us, Lord, we receive all that you are to us, that you would strengthen us with your personal presence, that we would believe your promises this day, and that we would live in response to them. Uh, Lord, we offer our uh, congregation, and you know our needs. We're not huge. We're not strong. We don't find our strength in ourselves. We look to you in all things, both for um, our plans, our future, our opportunities. And we thank you, Lord, that you've placed us in this community at this time for your purposes. And we pray that you would work through them. So with our tithes and offerings today, with our prayers this morning, we offer ourselves for your kingdom's sake, that your will is done and your kingdom comes among and through us. All these things we pray to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.